We hope you'll enjoy this episode of Women Worth Knowing. Make sure you rate us on your podcast app, subscribe, and share it with a friend. Hi, this is Cheryl Broderson in studio with my good friend. Jasmine Allnut. Hello, friend. Hello, friend. <laughs> you know, I know you're moving to Montana pretty soon to mm. be teaching history. And my husband, Brian, is who you know, is always going, and she is so sharp. Who knows history like Jasmine? I don't know about that, but that is very kind of him. Well, <laughs> and speaking of history, you're yes. going to take us back in history. I am once again back in history. And you're going to take us to England again. I know. Sorry, folks. We're just like stuck here in England. But this is a different time period, at least. That's so, right. we're, you know, we're moving along. We're a little, we're past the <laughs> we're reformers. We're out of the Reformation. Yes, but we're not quite to the Methodists. Well, we're going to quite. We're going to kind of lean into them now or right. get into them. Exactly. Right. We're going to the the initiation. The initiation. The I like that. Yes. yes. Because, you know, um, this, it's, I think this is a, maybe something a lot of people aren't familiar with. I wasn't until I started studying this years ago. But uh, as we know, there were um, several movements of God throughout Europe and America after the Reformation. We've kind of touched on some of it. We looked at um, Puritan influence in England and America, or Europe and America, and then, uh, well, especially England, uh, but also the Great Awakening in America. We talked about that when we looked at um, Jonathan and Sarah Edwards and their ministry and the revival in the U.S. Uh, but there was another really important move of God's Spirit that took place in the generation after the Puritans and kind of concurrent with the Great Awakening, just to give you kind of a Time frame there. Remember, the Great Awakening peaked between 1739 and 1741, so early 18th century. And around that same time, the Methodist revival broke out in the UK, and it was really initiated by two brothers, John and Charles Wesley. So they are uh, considered the founders of what later would become the Methodist Church. They were actually Anglican themselves. They didn't want to start that right. a new denomination that's or right. something, but that's what yeah. came out of their ministry. And by far, they were two of the most important Christian figures in the 18th century. Now, they were Methodists, though, because they had methods. Very they were precise. Very disciplined. Yes. <laughs> very disciplined. But they were also called, they were at, uh, they were at Oxford, and they were also called enthusiasts. Yes, very enthusiastic. And and at one point, they uh, formed with their friend George Whitfield, who might be a familiar name. We've mentioned him before. They formed the Holy Club. That's right. <laughs> when they were at Oxford. But George Whitfield was more like on a scholarship. He was poor. And the Wesleys, even though their father had been a vicar, mm. they they were considered um, upper class. Interesting. Mm -hmm. oh, I didn't realize that. In fact, that. when John is going to get married, Charles's brother weighs in on it. And one of the women was considered unsuitable because of her class, the class that right. she was in. I guess that would make sense because if you were in the ministry or if your mm -hmm. parents were, or if your dad was a vicar, you did have some kind of standing. Are you, and you, you should know, have had position. Like, probably a lot, a lot of the stratification had to deal with moral values. Well, there's that too. crazy because at the top of the aristocracy, the, the morals were just abominable. Yeah, there's no morality. And at the bottom, <laughs> they were abominable. Yeah. So you it was interesting middle, because it yeah. was the middle class that mainly was had morals. Had morals. Yeah. yeah, I remember uh, reading a, no a novel about that, how, you know, the aristocracy was annoyed with the middle class because of their morals sometimes. Right. It's That's funny. Right. So, you know, but like I said, the Wesleys were really, really significant um, revivalists, evangelists, and the ministry they started was really profoundly influential. John Wesley was way ahead of his time as an evangelist because, you know, he 
he put the gospel first, of course. In fact, he was uh, his famous quote was, the world is my parish. I mean, he would travel anywhere to share the gospel. But he also was really ahead of his time uh, with social uh, reform. Uh, he was a slave abolitionist. He was talking about slave abolition way before Wilberforce and all those guys were even born. So, I mean, he was very uh, forward thinking in that way. And Charles, his brother, uh, wrote, Oh, gosh, between eight and 9,000 hymns that, crazy? that were really, I know, it's wild. He's like, you know, like Fanny Crosby for the women. Right. It was Charles Wesley with the he guys. He wrote Great Is Thy Faithfulness, <laughs> which is, I think, didn't he write Great Is Thy Faithfulness? Mm, I'm not sure he wrote which that one? one. He wrote, Well, he is known for writing Hark the Herald Angels Sing, and he wrote like a lot of other, um, oh gosh, Maybe. Christ All Loves Excelling, like yeah. several that, I grew up in the Free Methodist Church, so oh, we sang a lot right. of those. The one I remember <laughs> most is like uh, when, um, Light came into my room. I rose and followed. Oh, amazing love! That's what he. Okay, wrote. there you amazing go. Amazing love. Yes, that song. How can it? Yep, he did yes, write that one. That was the one. I got that mixed up with greatest thy faithfulness, no, okay. which might be Fanny Crosby. But who knows? Yeah, I know. Who was that? That's, well, I will okay, find we'll look, out why you. Cheryl's going to look that up while yes. we keep. Yeah. <laughs> But these hymns, so they were quite a team. You know, John is the evangelist. Charles is writing these hymns. And together, they profoundly edified the church. They were instrumental in bringing revival, like I said, to the UK. And then it spread over into America. In fact, you know, the Methodists really did turn England upside down in their generation. Some historians say that uh, they, the ministry of the Wesleys, because it brought up such a strong Christian influence and saved so many people, it kept England from experiencing something like the French Revolution, like some really bloody upheaval. And it's so it's pretty incredible. And then the revival spread over to the U.S. later in the 17 and 1800s through uh, the circuit preaching ministry. The Methodists were known for being circuit riders, and they'd go all over the frontier uh, in colonial America and stuff. And so, I mean, I love these guys. That's where Charles Wesley, well, in uh, sorry, John Wesley with mm -hmm. Charles Wesley, but he would he had done that already in yep. England, and that's what yes. he did here in England. And where in England Cornwall seemed to have the greatest response mm. to the ministry of John Wesley. Love it. But also he got beaten up a lot too. Oh, they were. I mean, he was, he was brutalized, and he was not a man of great stature either. Right, and yeah, not necessarily like some imposing figure. I think wasn't there a story? I think there was a story I heard that <laughs> that one time he had was worried because he hadn't been persecuted lately, so he got off his horse and knelt and said, "Lord, am I doing something wrong? Am I in sin?" And some guy in the distance said, "There's John Wesley," and threw something at him. So he was like, oh, "Thank you, Lord. I'm not in sin." Got back on his horse. <laughs> you know what's interesting though uh, about that is you think of the stamina to be able to persevere through something like that. Kind of like Paul, who says, yes. "You know, I'm a prisoner of Jesus Christ for your sake. You know, I'm I'm fine. I don't want you to be." Con I was just reading Ephesians chapter three today. I don't want you to be concerned about what I'm going through. Mm -hmm. I, I'm. I meant for this. And that's Love how it. John Wesley was. But behind every great man of God, sometimes you will find a great mom. Yes. A godly mom. A godly mom. A lot of times we've been uh, talking about uh, the women behind the men in terms of wives. Right. But we haven't often had a chance to talk about moms. So their mother was so influential in their lives, and her name was Susanna Wesley. She's actually been requested by some of our listeners. So mm -hmm. those of you who asked for her, you will be happy to know that's who we're talking about today. Susanna Wesley, uh, probably the most famous mom in church history, honestly. Um, one biographer said the Wesley's mother was the mother of Methodism in a religious and moral sense for her courage, submissiveness to authority, the high tone of her mind, its independence, and its self-control— 
The warmth of her devotional feelings and the practical direction given to them came up and were visibly repeated in the character and conduct of her sons, as we shall see. So she really trained them up in the way they should go. And you really see um, her influence reflected in their life and ministry. Now, did you know she was the 25th child? Crazy. Uh, I I think it was between two moms, right? Or the two wives, right? Right, right. right. So, but, you know, (laughs) her mom was the second wife. Yes, exactly. But her father, Dr. Ansley, Mm -hmm. had 25 children. That's insane. I mean, you're not going to get a lot of attention in that. Yeah. (laughs) Fend for yourself. That's right. Not surprisingly, she was pretty independent. So Susanna was born in 1669 in London. um, And yes, her dad, uh, Dr. Samuel Ansley, was an Anglican minister during the rise of the Puritan Commonwealth under Oliver Cromwell, who we've talked about before. And so, and I have to say, you know, in previous episodes, we've talked about the severity of Cromwell and his government. And there were a lot of issues with uh, the Puritans who um, were militant. They really had some issues. But it should be noted that, you know, the Anglican church in that day had also become super carnal and corrupt. So that's why the Puritans showed up in the first place. They're trying to, you know, know, come back at some of that. So, Mm It's interesting because Samuel spoke out against uh, the abuses of Cromwell's government, especially the execution of Charles I, the king, Mm -hmm. which, you know, I agree. That was not a good move. (laughs) Um, But he actually— Not his best moment. (laughs) Yeah, not not Cromwell's finest moment. But it's interesting because Samuel, even though he didn't like that stuff, he actually was more aligned theologically with the Puritans than the Anglicans. So when the monarchy was restored in 1662— And they issued the Act of Uniformity, where everybody had to be Anglican. He left the church and became a dissenter, which would be like like John Bunyan, who we've Mm -hmm. talked about before, or a Mm -hmm. um, nonconformist. That was another word for it. And so what's funny is, um, I actually, like you said, how Susanna, um, being the last kid, she didn't get a lot of attention. So she did become pretty independent. And it's interesting because... Uh, She really was very sharp and so independent, and she inherited her dad's strong will. And so uh, she knew her own mind from the time she was really young. And so when she was only 13, she decided, even though her dad, her family had gone with the dissenters, she's like, no, I'm going to go back into the Anglican church by myself. So that's pretty crazy. Like I said, as a young teenager, Mm -hmm. no, I think Mm -hmm. I still want to go that direction. And so that was, you know, quite a controversial decision in the family. But it's it's cute because her biographers all say that she was still her dad's favorite child mm-hmm. because maybe she was the most like him. <laughs> you know, though, I think, though, that you brought up a very important point is that the Puritans went too far in their militancy. Yeah. Mm. And the militancy was wrong. I mean, they were as barbarous to their enemies as their enemies were to them. It's ironic. It really like, is. Why are you pushing against this but doing the same thing? Right, exactly. <laughs> and and that's why I think when we're later get to Charles, which we'll we'll probably talk about we'll talk about Molly one day. Oh my gosh. Um but one of the things is that he saw a need for something different, something different than the Anglicans and something different than the Puritans. And he felt like he was going biblical. Mm. And not, you know, the Methodists, they were going methodical method, you know, mm-hmm. and enthusiastically yeah. into the gospel. That's a good point. Yeah. Mm-hmm. John and Charles kind of mm-hmm. found a third way, I right. guess, <laughs> a middle road. Um, it's interesting because uh, Susanna, when she came of age, she got married to uh, Samuel Wesley and she married him in 1689 when she was 20 years old. And it's interesting because he also had dissenter roots, but had also chosen to return to the Church of England. 
So it's kind of interesting. She found somebody who had the same right. kind of. And 20 years old is considered kind of old in those yes, days to get married. Totally. It was back then. And so, mm-hmm. uh, but it's interesting that they both kind of just knew their own minds. So they were, in that way, they were two peas in a pod. Mm-hmm. Not in very many ways, but no. in that particular way. One way, yes. <laughs> uh, they were like-minded. So uh, they were, like I said, married in 1689. And then seven years later, in 1696, Samuel and Susanna settled in Epworth. And that's where they ended up kind of settling, uh, raising their family for the next several decades, ministering because Samuel became the uh, vicar, the pastor there, mm-hmm. basically, in the Anglican church. Uh, Susanna ultimately gave birth to 19 children, including two sets of twins. So mm-hmm. maybe that explains some of that. Uh, nine of these kids passed away as infants, including one of the sets of twins. Very common in that mm-hmm. day and age. You know, that's mm-hmm. why it was crazy when we were talking about the Edwards. You know, mm-hmm. they had a, quite a batting average that 10 mm-hmm. out of their 11 kids survived mm-hmm. infancy. That's not normal. That's right. So um, Susanna and Samuel, like I said, they both had strong will, strong convictions. So that could make their relationship a little bit dynamic, shall we say, a little bit colorful. Well, especially Susanna, when they disagreed. Yes, politically, especially. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> and so it's interesting. They loved, they were committed to one another, but Susanna later did admit to one of her sons uh, that unfortunately she and Samuel had never seen many situations alike. And the most notorious example of this, as you said, was a political argument. Um, so Samuel and Susanna were both Tories, which would be British conservatives. But when the Glorious Revolution happened in England, um, where William and Mary took the throne and uh, England became Protestant, what happened was in order for that to happen, James II, the Stuart King, he had uh, fled. You know, he was a Catholic and he had fled the country. Um, And so there was like this kind of a division. Some people felt like James should still be the king and he was the rightful heir. Especially many of the Scots. Yes. And so they were trying to bring it in. And yeah, the Jacobites and Mm -hmm. all of that. And so... um, but then there were others who were like, no, no, William is the rightful king. And so <laughs> Samuel acknowledged William as king and Susanna still believed James was the true king. So one day, and this is actually several years into their marriage in 1701, Susanna refused to say amen after Samuel's prayer for King William. And this created a tension between them that lasted for an entire year, which is so crazy. Samuel actually went off to London and became a convocation proctor uh, for um I don't know, for the king or whatever. And so it wasn't until the next year, 1702, when Queen Anne came to the throne, that's when he finally came back home because he and Susanna finally agreed that she was the rightful sovereign. It's like, mm-hmm. oh my goodness. So, I mean, that's like, which is interesting. taking things a little far. <laughs> she's the um, sister of uh, Mary. William and Mary got oh, married and right. Anne was the sister of Mary. But the thing about William, William was actually, wasn't he Dutch? Mm-hmm. But William mm-hmm. and Mary by relations, um, what did I say, their relatives, right. both had equal claims to the throne of England. Interesting. Like cousins and right. relatives. Right, And yeah, so— And bred a lot there. <laughs> and some felt that Mary's claim was stronger that than That might Williams. be why and so Anne, was okay mm-hmm. now. Okay, right. interesting. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yes. And you it's could so, say amen at the end of the prayers. Yes, finally, awesome. there could be—yeah, they were united at last— in fact, one biography said this was kind of funny. Because John Wesley was born in 1703, he was probably the product of their reconciliation. That's what one of the biographies said. I was like, there that's hilarious. Go. So right. there you go. Obviously, things worked out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, um, Samuel Samuel was uh, definitely a respected minister and theologian. He wrote several theological works. But 
Um, he was also known to embrace controversy, and he could get pretty combative. Not surprising when you look mm-hmm. at even just in their marriage what happened. Right. Um, even though he was the minister in Epworth, he always he wasn't always super connected to his flock, and he was traveling a lot. He was absent quite a bit, and in a way, um, Susanna actually kind of seemed like a widow. Uh, her biographer said she was responsible not only for the family, but virtually for the parish and church as well. In fact, at one point when Samuel was out of town, Susanna began um, holding Sunday night services in the rectory kitchen just for her servants and children. But I guess word got around. And so before long, she had 200 people coming there to the rectory. I mean, obviously, they didn't all fit in the kitchen. I don't know no, where they I met. Had, I had heard but that many would stand around outside just to listen to the through the windows. Crazy, mm-hmm. right? And so they'd all just come mm-hmm. around to hear her mm-hmm. teaching the Bible. Mm-hmm. And it's so funny because Samuel had left uh, his curate in charge, but the curate was super boring and dry. Mm-hmm. Nobody really liked coming to his services. Um, but he got so offended by the fact that she was getting all these people <laughs> That he actually complained to Samuel, mm-hmm. you know, he got jealous. Anyways, it was just kind of a funny situation. So, I mean, this is how much she was holding down the fort. She was a brilliant woman. Yes, she was. And so, um, you know, obviously, Suzanne and Samuel, they had their challenges. Uh, the area, though, that created the most substantial conflict was the area of finances. Um, Susanna was very thrifty and very capable as a housekeeper and, and just trying to manage all of their resources. But Samuel really had Well, basically, he had no clue how to manage his money, Mm -hmm. um, constantly was in debt. And so, you know, it's sweet because the Lord always provided for the family. But um, Samuel's poor management really created a lot of stress for Susanna. Um, He was in debtor's prison twice, which was super embarrassing. You know, I mean, he's the minister. What kind of an example is that setting? I mean, they really, you know, that's highlighted over and over again as the main strain on their marriage. Of course, there were these other things that came up, but that was really hard. But Susanna, to her credit, um, she was willing to speak her mind and definitely stuck to her convictions when necessary, but she also respected and just supported and loved her husband in spite of this. Um, I think you know, we, had, we just, need to bring amazing. up, you know, you said Samuel was absent quite a bit, mm-hmm, you know, whether prison mm-hmm. or, you know, visiting. But one of the things, too, is she homeschooled all of those children and educated all of them and every child but one of the 10 read before they were four years old. Amazing. I mean, that she's she's held up by the homeschoolers. All right. The model. I love it. Yes. Most of the women that have requested Susanna Wesley. Actually, that's probably why. Yeah. They're homeschool moms (laughs) because she is one of the first that I've known to actually school all of her children. She was doing so much. Brilliantly. I mean, when you consider that two of her sons went on to Oxford, she's She's brilliant. Yes. I mean, and she it had and as you can see, she had so much on her plate. Right. Even just dealing with her husband, let alone the kids. And and I love that, you know, she had cause to complain, but she just kept choosing to honor God and trying to honor him, uh, Samuel. And so the Lord, I think, really just blessed and honored that, you know, that uh, devotion, that obedience to Christ and that love, her faithfulness to her husband. And I will say, too. Samuel really did love and appreciate his wife. You know, you read some of the biographies and you want to just get down on him. But he really did um, appreciate and respect her. He wrote this really lovely poem um, praising her in one of his theological works. And then he also gave this commendation of her to the children. He said, you know what you owe to one of the best of mothers, above all for the wholesome and sweet motherly advice and counsel, which she has often given you to fear God. And one of their biographers actually does point out that even though Samuel was a pretty enigmatic kind of a character. God did use him 
in a lot of ways, especially through their children, as we're going to see. Well, she was very disciplined Mm -hmm. with the children. Mm -hmm. And they had um, a lot of discipline. And I often wonder if that's why uh, Charles and John became Methodist and developed the Methodism because of the the disciplines they were raised with. Yes, absolutely. In fact, um, Susanna's child rearing is what she is most mm-hmm. known for. And John actually, uh, he was he was really influenced by her. Um, many, many times he actually, as an adult, kept trying to press her to write out her method of parenting. Mm. Here we go. Oh, there you go. Yes. And so she put him off at first. Um, and I love what she said. She said, no one can, without renouncing the world in the most literal sense, observe my method. And there are few, <laughs> if any, who would entirely devote above 20 years of the prime of life in hope to save the souls of their children. For that was my principal intention, however unskillfully and unsuccessfully managed. So she was very humble and didn't feel like, yeah. she's like, I don't know, John, if really this is worth writing out. But finally, in 1732, Um, he prevailed upon her and she wrote out an eight point outline. So yes, I'm glad you mentioned that because this was her method. I'll just read through these points really quick because it's pretty, you know, pretty remarkable. Number one, whoever was charged with a fault of which they were guilty, if they would ingenuously confess it and promise to amend should not be beaten. Spanked, sorry, for those Mm -hmm. who might be freaked out by the word beaten. (laughs) This rule prevented a great deal of lying. Number two, no sinful action should ever pass unpunished. Number three, no child should ever be scolded or beat twice for the same fault. And if they amended it, they should never be, it should never be brought up again afterwards. Number four, every signal act of obedience, especially when it crossed on their own inclinations, should always be commended and frequently rewarded. Number five, if ever any child performed an act of obedience or did anything with the intention to please, even though the performance was not well, but the yet the obedience and intention should be kindly accepted and the child with sweetness directed how to do better in the future. Number six, none suffered to invade the property of another in the smallest matter. No taking each other's stuff. <laughs> Number seven. Our hands to self. That's a Yes, really keep your hands to way. yourself. Yes. That's a great. Yep, exactly. Number seven, promises should be strictly observed. And number eight, this is a biggie. No girl should be taught to work until she can learn to read very well, which goes to your point about them all learning to read by the age of four. That was really um, important and really unusual. Um, the children's education was so paramount to Susanna and her emphasis on educating the girls was especially progressive at that mm-hmm. time. You know, it's interesting because I read that one of the girls didn't learn to read till she was five, but maybe that's <gasps> because she didn't want to work. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> interesting. She, she stalled. Once yeah. I read, I have to learn oh, to do man, dishes. She's going to make me do this other stuff. Embroidery, yes. Smart kid. Right. <laughs> so Susanna basically, kind of like that quote where she, that she, what she wrote to John, you know, she devoted herself to just basically conducting a school for her family. It was... Um, six hours a day, you know, by at least Monday through Friday for 20 years, which is crazy. Um, apparently, some of the kids were slow learners, or maybe they chose to be. Right. Uh, but she was so patient. In fact, there was a story that one time Samuel was counting how many times she repeated the same fact to one of the kids. Mm. And he said, I wonder at your patience. You've told that child 20 times the same thing. And Susanna said, if I had satisfied myself by mentioning it only 19 times, I should have lost all my labor. It was the 20th time that crowned it. So she's like, hey, they finally listened on the 20th time. So Right. Now, you said six hours a day were spent yes. training. But one of those hours every day, she's she's really known for. Oh, yes. We will, we will get to that. So 
most importantly, Susanna really was devoted to raising her kids to know the Lord. Yes, reading all that stuff was important, but she really was more concerned than anything else about their spiritual state. We're going to see she modeled that for them, but she also wrote to them about it. Um, even when they were adults, she was always concerned for their soul. She said, I desire nothing in this world so much as to have my children well instructed in the principles of religion that they may walk in the narrow way, which alone leads to happiness. And so she actually wrote this in a letter to her oldest son. And I love this. She didn't mess around. She said, I cannot tell whether you have ever seriously considered the lost, miserable condition you are in by nature. If you have not, it is high time to begin to do it. And I shall earnestly beseech the Almighty to enlighten your mind, to renew and sanctify you by his Holy Spirit, that you may be his child by adoption here and an heir of his blessed kingdom hereafter. So I love that. She's like, do you realize what a mess you are without Christ? I mean, she wanted him to really know that he needed a savior. And she wrote similarly to John, I heartily wish you to enter into a serious examination of yourself that you may know whether you have a reasonable hope of salvation. That is whether you are in a state of faith and repentance or not, which you know are the conditions of the gospel covenant on our part. And so John really did value his mom's counsel. He took this to heart. Frequently, he wrote to her during his university years at Oxford. And of course, beyond that, it was actually said from the time he was young uh, that um, he might not get married because he said, I could never find such a woman as my father had. And so it's not surprising her wisdom and that methodical method of methodical method, reiterating it there, uh, lived, you know, that way of living really rubbed off on him mm -hmm. and played a role in his approach to the Christian now, life. Now, are you going to mention that her house burned down twice? Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, there's so many things. Um, she was an example to her kids in a lot of ways in terms especially of her prayer and devotional life, which you kind of hinted at before, right. because she really vowed early in life not to spend more time on entertainment than she did in prayer and Bible study. And so even when all the kids That's were so there, yes. it is super convicting. And so she committed to spend two hours a day with the Lord no matter what, even with all those kids. So she would famously, and this is what a lot of people know yep. about her, she would take her long apron and throw it over her head. And like turn, a prayer shawl. Yes, and turn it in basically, yeah, into a prayer shawl or a tent of meeting. It was actually, they called it that, her tent of meeting, where everybody in the household knew when mom did that, put the apron over, over her head, they should not disturb her because she was going to spend the next two hours with the Lord. I mean, unless there was an emergency, like, you know, Johnny cut his hand off. Or the you know, house that, burning down. Or that too, yes. yes. So, I mean, yeah, the Wesleys, I mean, they went through so much in their 46 years of marriage and family, poverty, health problems, the deaths of several kids. And then, yes, the house burning down not once but twice mm -hmm. where they lost everything. Actually, John was barely rescued in one of those in one of those fires. And so he actually called himself a brand plucked from the burning. Um, Susanna felt she should especially be careful of this son's soul. And so that's kind of interesting because he's the one that the mm -hmm. Lord set aside to use in such a mighty way. So. They were, in spite of it all, a very happy, affectionate, united family. And wasn't Samuel even driven out of one church, too? Oh, gosh. I believe so. Yes. Yeah, because he, he was so controversial like, sometimes. Right. So she had to put up with that. Oh, and my she goodness. She didn't even so agree things. with him. She, she yeah. agreed more with the congregation. But yep. she was committed to him for 44 years. It's crazy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you know what's neat? Even though he went home to be with the Lord in February of 1735, she actually lived long enough to witness the early stages of the revival mm. that God would bring about through her sons. You know, John was her 15th and Charles was her 18th child. Wow. And it's neat because through them, she actually experienced kind of a fresh work of the Spirit in her own life. 
Uh, she went to live with them in London in 1741, and John said Susanna's last years were profoundly blessed of God as she witnessed her life being lived out in revival. Uh, sorry, he didn't say that. Her biographer did. But uh, Susanna, um, sadly, she suffered from chronic gout for quite a oh. while, and so eventually her health began to fail rapidly in the summer of 1742. And so on July 18th, John wrote, I found my mother on the borders of eternity, but she has no doubt or fear nor any desire, but as soon as God should call her to depart and be with Christ. So she died July 23rd, 1742. She was buried August 1st at Bunhill Fields, which, fun fact, is where John Bunyan is buried, uh, the hymn writer Isaac Watts, a bunch of other dissenters. That was like the dissenters' burial ground. I, I've gone and visited that. You've probably seen it, too. No. It's across the street from uh, John Wesley's house in London. It's near Old Street Station. Really? I haven't so. been to John Wesley's house <gasps> either. Well, this is the know. London house. I think there were other— I know. want to uh, take the tour. There's oh, a walking tour that there you can is. take. Yes. Mm -hmm. We did that years ago. It's such a cool spot. So, mm -hmm. But, I mean, my goodness, this woman had such an incredibly dynamic and fruitful legacy through her children. Um, and I you think— know, that's what we under what we want to underscore today mm -hmm. is that she was a mother mm -hmm. and you know she she was a housewife and something that's not really esteemed totally today. Yeah. you know, oh you're a stay-at-home wife or you're a stay-at-home mom you know what's that but she was a stay-at-home mom who dedicated herself uh to the Lord first and then to her children and made that her ministry. Yes. Was her ministry. And even her husband was her ministry. He was a <laughs> He definitely ministry. was her, yeah. <laughs> and the church was a ministry. And I think it was kind of in that order, actually, the Lord, the children, the husband. And the, and church. the church, yes. But, but she, even as a, you know, mother, it was important to her. Absolutely. And I, I'm glad you mentioned that. One biographer said, although she never preached a sermon or published a book or founded a church, she is known as the mother of Methodism. I mean, really, her boys, her all of her children wouldn't have been who they were without their mom. I mean, really, she had such a profound influence. And it really does elevate um, and give honor mm -hmm. to ministry in the home. And, you know, I want to say this before we end, too, is that um, John Wesley um, didn't always walk with the Lord. I mean, he discovered that he really wasn't saved yeah. when he came to the Americas. And he really gave his life to the Lord through the Moravians, which I know you love that story. Oh, yes. <laughs> but the thing is, is that it was—there's that scripture in Proverbs, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart. Mm. And sometimes as mothers, you feel like, was all my work in vain? But you're putting in seeds. Yes. And, you know, God talks about—sorry, uh, Paul talks about— one plants, mm -hmm. one waters, but God gives the increase. And as moms, sometimes we're just sowing all these seeds. Mm -hmm. And it's hard because somebody else will come around and water it and they'll yeah, just yeah. like, that person was so wonderful. They did everything <laughs> in my life. And you're like, okay, great. You Wait, know, I said that first. Right. You and know, I, I took care of you took, when you were young. And exactly. I used to sing over you and hold you in my arms <laughs> and pray over you, which you know Susanna did. And her mm. intercession and her prayer, it availed. It so much. And that's why she's a woman worth knowing. Absolutely. So we did not want to overlook her. She's amazing. No. And that's why I had to share that with you today. That's Thanks right. Thanks for joining us. Yes. Thank you so much. And again, if you know a woman worth knowing, we'd like to hear about her. Or again, uh, we highlighted Susanna because we got so many requests. Yeah, like, we did. When are you going to do Susanna? Another one that we're getting <laughs> a lot of requests for is Rosalind Goforth. And yes, she is 
coming. But She's on the list, folks. Yes. And we will get to that list. I've got like 30 on my list right I now. I know. Yeah. So be patient with us, as Susanna was patient with her children. That's right. <laughs> because we we really don't want this to end, even though Jasmine mm-hmm. will be becoming a mm-hmm. guest feature. Yes. But she will. She'll call in every <laughs> once in a while and say, hey, Cheryl, I've got a one more throwing, and I'll be so excited when she There'll does always that. always be women to highlight. Absolutely. Right. I'm not going to run out of those. Yes, and I think you'll meet some in Montana. <laughs> you never know. Like, yes. That's true. <laughs> I've got more for you. You Maybe even some Montana women. Oh, like, yeah. Hardcore that's out bear right. hunting. I'm just kidding. <laughs> so, again, you can write us at graciouswords.com and go to the link to Women Worth Knowing. We're mm-hmm. so excited to bring you this program every week. And we mm-hmm. just want to thank you for listening and thank being so part of our Women Worth Knowing family. Does yes. that sound good? It sounds lovely and inviting. <laughs> yes. And don't forget to like us. That's right. On the, yes. And <laughs> rate what, us on the app. Right. Thank you. And until next week, this is Sherilyn, Jasmine, Jasmine saying, oh. saying something. We yeah. say goodbye. Bye. See you next time. <laughs> Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Women Worth Knowing with Cheryl Broderson and Jasmine Allnett. For more information on Cheryl, visit CherylBroderson.com or follow her on Instagram or Facebook. You can also follow Jasmine on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. If you think there is a woman worth knowing, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at wwk at cccm.com. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode. Make sure you've subscribed and don't forget to rate us on your podcast app and share it with friends. Thank you again for listening to Women Worth Knowing with Cheryl Broderson and Jasmine Allnett.